This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's food becoming a tool for oppression. When you have a colonizer taking the food of the, you know, the less voice, the less powerful and reclaiming it as its own and it's part of its own culture becomes uh, another way of robbing people's lives and stories and they're especially Palestinians they have no control over the land of water of of of, of their um, movement so when you take their stories as well it becomes even more oppressive it becomes another way of of uprooting you know people from their land it starts with just taking that leap I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. My name is Mira Bami. I'm uh, from Palestine, uh, Jerusalem, and uh, I'm an artist. And my practice has been on the politics of disappearance since I started working in visual art in 2016. I added food to my research on disappearance. And then, you know, I was totally taken by the world of food. And I have a project called Palestine Hosting Society, which I did a performance project. And uh, yeah, it's been a wild ride since then. So we'll delve into all that, but uh, I want to go back pretty early. Can you talk to me about some of your earliest memories with your family? My earliest memories was my mom in the kitchen learning new recipes. My mom is Lebanese and she got married at an early age. She started learning how to cook when she moved to Palestine. I remember she moved uh, with a cookbook and that cookbook, it was the book cookbook that all new brides took to their new houses. And it's called the Alifba al tabakh which is the alphabet of cooking. And from this new bride who didn't know how to fry an egg, she became quite a hostess. But before she was hosting those tables, she would always try those new recipes. And we were, as kids, the ones trying out those new dishes and giving her our opinion. So the table was always a moment or like the meal was a moment of discussion of how we like the food. And I think that gave me um, the confidence to start cooking early on. So whenever she goes to her uh, family in Beirut um, and leave us uh, in Palestine, the kitchen would be my lab. It would be my, my playground. Try recipes and especially uh, sweet things. And I think I was 10 years old when I baked my first cake um, and my cousin came to visit and she couldn't believe that I, I made it. So like obviously uh, one way for you to express yourself and your your background and like your ties uh, to your Palestinian heritage was through food. Something I thought was interesting, I was talking to uh, Fadi Katan and he was basically saying a lot of 
Palestinian dishes are not just not known for being Palestinian, but they're actually uh, misappropriated to other cultures. How do you feel about Palestinian food not getting credit for being Palestinian food and instead being under the umbrella of another country or culture? It's food becoming a tool for oppression. When you have a colonizer taking the food of the, you know, the less voiced, the less powerful and reclaiming it as its own and it's part of its own culture. It becomes uh, another way of robbing people's lives and stories. And they're, especially Palestinians, they have no control over the land, of water, of, 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 of their um, movement. So when you take their stories as well, it becomes even more oppressive. Even like Jamid, which is a fermented dried yogurt, now it's being marketed as um, Middle Eastern Parmesan. And it's a Bedouin dried ferment yogurt that is a base for so many dishes in the Palestinian and Jordanian kitchen. You take a dish that you have no relation to and you reclaim it as its own because you're trying to create, you know, a culinary culture. But this culture is based on robbing other people's stories and voices without giving credit for this. It becomes another way of, of uprooting, you know, people from their land. Can you tell me about how you started to think about creating the Palestine Hosting Society? That summer, 2016, I felt that I don't know what's happening in the world and I had no control and I was questioning my role as an artist in such times, like what is the meaning of creating art when the world feels collapsing? And I remembered that I needed an answer to what we as artists can contribute to our communities through our practice. So I asked myself the question of what do you love as much as arts? Because I cannot stop creating art and being an artist. And I realized that food was always this medium that I was learning about the world and cultures through. And I went to Palestine and I was, um, I enrolled myself in a culinary school for a year. And midway through my studies, I realized that actually I need to create a platform where we talk about food. And then I started the Palestine Hosting Society because I wanted to know more, to learn more on a kitchen that has been mostly uh, lost. Can you tell me a little bit about how you prepare for each project? Like where you go, who do you spend time with? How does that all come together? I was picking cities and the neighboring villages of those cities, and I was going deeper into understanding the specific kitchens of each city. So, for example, Nablus. I went to Nablus for three months, and I was, you know, going to the markets, meeting people, going to people's kitchens. And after this period of research, I create a menu, and that menu becomes the structure for the performance. And I cook this menu and then it's hosted over uh, one long or two long tables usually. Everything, you know, is thought of in those performances from how the table is laid out, from uh, the napkins that we print for each table, from how the food is plated and shared. The table becomes an installation, you know, it, it, it's everything is intentional. Could you tell me uh, one of the stories that stands out to you as maybe most impactful or most interesting? 
And so the ones in Palestine are usually the richest because this knowledge that I'm, uh, I'm gathering is one way of fighting uh, food appropriation of the Palestinian kitchen. In the Wild Edible Plants table, I was doing research for three months and I was collecting recipes. And one of the desserts that I shared on that table was called Psisat Kharub. And it's a very simple ancient dish that has carob molasses and flour or uh, semolina. There's two options. And one reason why this uh, recipe or this dish was lost or forgotten is because in Galili, all the ingredients that makes this dish are no more there. It was this old man that I when I, when I was presenting this dish myself, and he said he really like just stopped and he said, "I'm speechless because I did not eat this psise since I was five years old." And for me, somehow, it answered the question that I was asking myself in 2006, you know, what can we as artists contribute to our communities and our societies? And it was that moment. For me to go back and gather those stories and recipes, bring them to the present moment and change it, change myself and change the present moment and somehow write history in a new way. We talked about appropriation a little bit, and I guess something that I'm pulling away from this is that you want people to understand the stories and the origins of where that food comes from. So how can people who are Palestinian or who are not Palestinian help in those efforts to educate and not appropriate Palestinian food, but instead enjoy and spread knowledge about it? The world stopped listening for Palestinian because it's it, they've been listening to the same story that has been emanating from media over and over and over. I think through the lens of food, I make people listen again. I love how there's so many voices uh, came out of Palestine in relation to food. And somehow it feels that what we're all doing has is paying off. When I started, uh, people were telling me uh, that there's nothing called Palestinian kitchen. It's an extension of the, the Levantine kitchen. But now you cannot have anyone saying this. And that by itself is, um, is a triumph, I think, because our kitchen um, reflects the diversity of people who live in Palestine and their stories. Once you connect to Palestine and the Palestinian kitchens, you somehow um, connect to all those indigenous cultures and voices that have been suppressed all over the world. Uh, and it's another kind of knowledge and wisdom that we need to reclaim to the present moment uh, to save ourselves as humans. Without history, how else would we know who we are and where we come from? food, land, and media carry the history of a national identity. As Israel took ownership of these things, Myrna watched the stories of her nation become warped and appropriated. However, she refused to let Palestine's unique identity dissolve. Myrna discovered how to preserve an identity without a land, without a memory, without even a body. By celebrating the lost recipes of Palestine, Myrna has found a way to revive its history and return it to the present moment. With every note of flavor in lies the emotions ancestors have carried, the history of their agriculture, and the traditions of the past. Like the strings on a guitar, every bite plays the story of Palestine. Through her art, 
Myrna has made the invisible visible. She affirms that no matter what gets taken away physically, Palestine's sense of community and rich culture will remain in the hearts and minds of its people and the world at large. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez, Tomas Renteria, Nathan Tower, Callum Turnbull, Lauren Yamada, and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiar, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Lett, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, and Marie Vaughn. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Harrison Duffy, Alexandra Huntalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, and Virna Seminario. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Linda Tapia. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.